She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I am Sarah Gorski, your host, and I am here today with a new special guest, Mr. Joe Lex. Listeners, Joe is the first guest I have had here on the podcast who had submitted abroad via our contact form on our website. And when I found out what uh, a researcher he is and that he has his own podcast, I asked him if he would join us today. So I am delighted to introduce you to Joe Lex. Joe, what can you tell us about yourself? Tell the audience. What can I tell you about myself? Well, I'm old. I'm retired. I was an emergency physician for many, many years. I retired as a professor of emergency medicine from Temple University and immediately walked away from medicine and started doing a community radio show and volunteer tour guide at a local historic cemetery. And then I said, you know, I miss putting research together and giving talks. So I started a podcast about the cemetery. It's called All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. I love that title. (laughs) It was suggested to me by a friend. It's been going for about three years now. I've got more than 35 shows, uh, podcasts up, wherever wherever you get your podcast. I did listen, Joe. I really enjoyed what I heard. So listeners, uh, if you are are enjoying the time we spend today with Joe uh, and next week as well, then uh, you ought to check out All Bones Considered. Well, Joe, I am super excited to bring you abroad. I picked especially for you knowing that you are a retired physician. This broad is the first female doctor in India. Her name is Kadambini Ganguli. Have you ever heard of her? I have not. Oh, that's great. This is going to be a treat then. I know the first female doctor in Sweden because she's buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Is she really? What are the chances of that? (laughs) But India, no, I do not know this story. Well, then I'm just going to just jump right in. And I feel like you're going to have a lot to say. So um, Kadambini was born Kadambini Bose on July 18th, 1861 in Bangalpur, British India, which today is Bangladesh. And 1861, this is a period of time that's in that region known as the Bengali Renaissance, which was a time of huge intellectual, religious, and social advancement in the region. And it lasted from the late 18th century through the 20th century. And so people were, at this period of time, they were starting to question some of the systems of structure that had been practiced for centuries in India, including the caste system, dowry, child marriage. uh, And there was a a tradition called sati. Uh, Have you ever heard of that? No. Sati is when a man dies and his widow sacrifices herself on her husband's pyre. That I do know about. I didn't know the name of it, though. I had never heard of it, and it's dark, very dark. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's just expected that she's going to be the martyr. Yes. I mean, I knew that Vikings did that, but I did not know that was also a tradition in India. And so all of these kind of old traditions are kind of coming into question at this period of time. Uh, And colonialism is starting to be 
questioned. Uh, the British had a pretty firm control over the region after the Battle of Plassey in 1757, and that's when the British East India Company defeated the Nawab of Bengal and his French allies. So, so the British are like really in the region right now. Indians are like, mm, we're we're not sure about this. We're not sure if we like being colonized. Um, so this is kind of the, a period of time where there's a lot of a lot of those thoughts are starting to develop. And Karambini's dad, his name is Braja Kishore Basu, was headmaster of Bengalpur School, uh, and he was an influential member of this Hindu reformation movement known as Brahmo Samaj, which was a monotheistic anti-caste movement. So kind of uh, a branch of Hinduism that was moving away from the polytheism. Um, and he also was a co-founder of India's first women's rights organization called Bengalpur Mahila Samiti. So her dad is clearly extremely progressive and kind yeah. of at the forefront of kind of all of this, um, this renaissance, the, the Bengali renaissance. And, really. and about what decade are we talking here? Uh, so she was born in 1861. So her father's work is in this time period. Okay. In, in this time period. So at the point when she's born, he's already involved in all of these things. Yes. And as with much of the rest of the world at the time, Indian women also generally were not given good educational opportunities. But mm. Kanabini's dad is the headmaster and he's like, uh, yeah, my daughter is going to school. Uh, and then after primary school, she uh, ends up attending the newly established college, Banga Mahila Vidyalaya, which later merged with Bethune College, which is easier for me to say. I'm trying my best with the Indian names, but that isn't my um, native language, obviously. And uh, Bethune College was India's very first college for women. And so she was one of the very first attendees kind of in this movement to actually let women participate in the education system. As part of their curriculum, the school adopted the Calcutta University entrance exam, which was notoriously difficult to pass. And in 1879, Kadambini became the first woman to pass it. And that was her. She already has several firsts here. She's a very, this is a recurring theme with her. You will find the rest of the episode. And Kadambini's success on the test actually inspired Bethune College to start their FA program, which stands for First Arts and open up graduate courses. So because because she was doing so well, they were like, actually, maybe this is, maybe we, we ought to actually offer a degree to women and let women really study here more openly. The first classes had only two students, Karambini, and her peer, Chandra Muki Basun. And in 1883, both of them finished their courses and became the first women to graduate college, not only in India, but in the whole British Empire. What? They were the first women to graduate college. Can you believe that? No. That's what all the sources said. Wow. 1883. Okay. Um, well, when, did, when did the biggies in um, England uh, start taking women? When did Oxford and Cambridge and the others start taking women? Any idea? The on, on October 7th, 1920 is when Oxford first started admitting women. Okay. So that's like 40 years after this. Okay. And do you know what she, what they got their degrees in? You know what? It doesn't say specifically. It just says uh, FA. So I think maybe that's the equivalent of like a Bachelor of Arts. Okay. 
that was my impression of it as this kind of a general degree. Yeah, no such thing as a major or minor back then. Either you got a degree or you didn't get a degree, and then yeah. you moved on. And there was a surprising lack of very very detailed resources in the research. So despite the fact that it only was a couple hundred years ago, there there wasn't a ton of documentation that was very specific about these experiences. So I, I think I, I read through as much as I, I could, and all of it was kind of the same level of, she got an F.A., <laughs> and that's all they say. <laughs> <laughs> so while she was in college, she fell in love with one of her teachers and mentors, Dwarkanath Ganguly. He was a widower and 17 years her senior. And he also happened to be a leader in India's women's rights movement, as well as a leader in the Brahmo Samaj, which was that um, lead, that monotheistic reformist group, the same one her dad was a part of. Mm-hmm. A bit after Kadambini graduates, they get married, and she's about 21 at this point. But their marriage is like really not very well supported by their peers. Uh, and apparently they invited um, a bunch of his Brahmo brotherhood that he was a part of, and none of them came to the wedding. Hmm. So I don't know if it was, it wasn't really clear if it was because he was a widower and people were like, we don't know about a second marriage, or if it was the fact that she was more educated and not not quite the housewife type like most Indian women at the time were. Yeah. Or maybe a little bit of a combination of both of them. But however progressive they both were individually and as a couple, the people around them didn't really share their progressive views on women's education. And both of them caught serious heat from the Brahma Samaj and the upper caste Badla Rock community. So they both were kind of, they were not very popular for, for all of these progressive thoughts that they were, <laughs> were moving forward. <laughs> and as impressive as she was already being the first woman to graduate college, Karambini wasn't finished learning. She wanted to go to med school and become a doctor. And her hubby, obviously a huge supporter of women's education to start with, he was one of her teachers, and he was 100% down. He was like, yes, definitely, you should apply to Calcutta Medical College, which heretofore had never accepted women. And at first, Calcutta Medical College flat out refuses to accept her. But the, the refusal to accept her kind of lights this fire and it stokes it even a little bit more for them. And apparently, Dwakarnath had been trying to convince Calcutta Medical College to enroll women for quite some time even before this. So when they turned her down, the couple put up a huge stink, and they finally threatened legal action. And Calcutta Medical College was like, fine, okay, we admit you. <laughs> and she is admitted as their first female medical student on June 23rd, 1883. 1883. Okay. Mm-hmm. Trying to think what medical education was like in the United States at that time. It was still, I mean, there were such things as medical schools. Mm-hmm. They were usually no more than a year or so. People would pay a certain amount of money to go to an anatomy lecture or a physiology lecture. And if they went to enough classes, then they would get a degree. But there was very little actually hands-on patient care in the 1880s. So I'm, yes. I don't know what, what it would have been like in India. Do you have any idea what medical school was like in India? You know, as far as I could tell, it was pretty similar. And we're, I mean, we're talking about the same time period. And she comes into play later in the story. But we're talking about the same time period that like Florence Nightingale was alive. So mm-hmm. I feel like not not being an, a doctor and an expert in such things, um, it, it's, it's, it seems like a time period where medicine itself was undergoing huge amounts of development. 
Oh where yeah. They're, they're first discovering like the importance of sanitary practice and, and yeah. all this of that. This would have been right, right in the sweet spot of uh, Lister's uh, antisepsis. Yes. Uh, he had described it in the 18, 1850s, but it took about 20 or 30 years for people to catch on. For instance, in the United States, you're talking 1883. 1881 is when James Garfield, President James Garfield, was shot, and he was attended by the best physicians on the East Coast who took turns sticking their unwashed fingers into the bullet hole trying oh, to find Oh, that's so gross. <laughs> Like it, this was the standard. This is the president of the United States, mind you. And these doctors are sticking their unwashed fingers in the bullet hole to try to find where the bullet is. Needless to say, Garfield died about 10 weeks later of sepsis. I'm surprised he lived as long as he did. If they yeah. kept their hands off of him, he would have lived. Back to 1883. Well, I guess we've come a long way. Medical historians estimate it was probably about 1900 or 1910 was the breaking point where doctors actually saved more people than they killed. I mean, wasn't, I mean, people going to the doctor for many people was a last resort, not only because it was expensive, I think, but also because you just, you yeah, just didn't they know what was going to happen. And going into the hospital was the same thing. Going to, you didn't go to the hospital unless you were dying. Yeah. And that was the case, you know, we, in the Florence Nightingale episode we did, we, we talked about how the, the rates, pe- people died more from infection in the hospital than they did on the actual battlefield. So yeah. So anyway, we're in the same time period as that. Now we know from previous broads we've covered, and I'm sure the broads you've researched too, Joe, that just because you're admitted <laughs> to a school that doesn't like to admit you, doesn't mean your fight is over. Uh, <laughs> and, and the true was true. The this same is was- still true. Yes. And the same was true for Kadambini. So the teachers and the staff did not make her med school education easy on her. One of her professors deliberately fails her to try to rob her of getting her degree. He doesn't entirely succeed, but he does manage to downgrade her degree a notch. So instead of an MB degree, she is awarded the graduate of Medical College of Bengal, which is a a GMCB degree. And that's in 1886. So she does graduate, just not with an MB. And she becomes the first Indian-educated female physician eligible to practice Western medicine. Um, She's not actually technically the first Indian woman to graduate because there's another woman named Anandi Gopal Joshi, and she was the first female Indian woman to get a medical degree, but she did not get it in India. She actually flew to the U.S., and she got a degree. I think, actually, it might have even been in Pennsylvania. I didn't put that in my notes. Probably a women's medical college. Women's Medical College in Philadelphia was the place a lot of these women from Europe came. It's it, it's interesting. Women who, for instance, we have two people buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Mary, Mary Engel Pennington and Rachel Lloyd, who wanted to get doctorates in the 1880s and 1890s. And they couldn't do it in Philadelphia, even though Mary Engel Pennington went on and invented the refrigerated rail car and the egg carton. Oh, my gosh. So Anandi Joshi, she's, she was the first one to actually get the medical degree. She got it in Pennsylvania, but she wasn't in very good health. And she ended up dying the following year before she really ever Ooh. became a practitioner. So even though she was the first woman to get the degree, she really wasn't the first doctor because she really kind of never got to practice, which is a huge bummer. But 
Karambini graduates, and the same year she graduates, she's appointed to Lady Dufferin Women's Hospital in Calcutta. Um, So she does become the first practicing Indian female physician. Now, that asshole professor who got her downgraded to her her GMCB degree. This this turns out to be kind of an issue. In general, she's a woman and people don't trust her because she's the first woman who's been a doctor and people don't trust women in general to do anything to do with in, anything intelligent, right? <laughs> so she's already kind of looked down upon, but people also use that degree difference to give her an extra hard time. And she really felt like she was being looked down on by all of her fellow doctors and she wasn't imagining it either. There, at one point, this this guy named Maheshandra Paul is the editor of a famous Bengali newspaper, and he publishes an article in which he calls Kanabini's qualifications into question, and then he calls her a courtesan, which Ooh. is basically calling her a whore. A whore, uh, yeah. In the newspaper. And uh, and part of you know part of this was general disrespect. Doctors often did late night visits to, to clients and things like that, which is something also that obviously ladies of the night would do. Mm-hmm. But you know it still was like utterly disgusting and awful and libel. Neither Karambini nor her husband were going to stand for it. So they take his ass to court, and after a long legal battle, the editor is sentenced to six months in jail for libel. Holy cow! Yeah. Wow. And one source I found said that Dwakarnath, her husband, confronted the guy directly and, quote, made him swallow the piece of paper where that comment was printed. <laughs> <laughs> now, only one of my sources said that, but I'm a huge fan of the thought of shoving libel down the person's throat who wrote it. So <laughs> it's worth cheering. So as unfounded as any of the criticism is, the bad press still, you know, kind of beating really felt like it was impacting her career. But rather than continuing to fight the rumor mill, Kanabini's like, I'll show you who's not qualified. And she travels to the UK in 1892 for more school in the form of doctoral certifications. Three of them, to be exact, she goes to get the triple diplomas of the Scottish College. Okay. Probably, Probably in Edinburgh. It's three of them. So it's it's Edinburgh, Dublin, and Glasgow. It's the three medical colleges. Oh. And there's this like special special triple diploma. I've not heard of that. Because I know a lot of a lot of Americans went to Scotland to study some of the specialties. Especially, you know, in places Philadelphia and Boston sent a lot of folks over there to really learn how to practice medicine. Yeah. Well, so what I, I looked into it, the triple qualification, since it was mentioned so specifically. So the triple qualification was a medical qualification awarded jointly by the Royal College of Surgeons, Surgeons of Edinburgh, the mm-hmm. Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, and the Faculty of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow. This degree has was awarded between 1884 and as late as 1993. Wow. And it was this was commonly a route used by international medical graduates and those unable to gain entry into university medical schools, which often included women and mm-hmm. like refugees and and doctors who kind of weren't from the the home state who had trouble getting into the local schools this was kind of like the number one option for completing that education at the time period so she she goes she leaves her family high drama she leaves her family in, in india no, and she no goes, children that's not true actually she has many children oh, okay. so i yeah she ends up she has eight children actually with her husband eight children now three of them uh it sounds like were from his previous marriage so maybe they weren't babies and such like that but still 
that still leaves, you know, what is that, five <laughs> other children? If she's got three kids from a guy 17 years older than her, then she's got some babysitters yeah. right there. Well, maybe, maybe. And like I said, this is like, those are the kind of details they didn't really include in any of the research, unfortunately. But she does graduate. She gets her triple diploma. She is the only female out of 14 successful candidates that year. And she is the first woman from South Asia that accomplished that. Wow. So she comes back to India and she has the degrees that can hopefully shut everybody up. <laughs> Do you know if this is a general medical degree or does it give some sort of specialization? She did have two specializations. Yes, she specialized in pediatrics and gynecology. Those were her kind of two specialties. When she's at school in the UK, though, she does cross paths with I've already mentioned her, Florence Nightingale. Mm -hmm. And Florence Nightingale actually wrote about Karambini in a letter to her friend, mentioning that she was asked to recommend Karambini to the female ward of a Calcutta hospital. And she said in this letter, quote, she has already passed what is called the first licentiate in medicine and surgery examinations and is to go up for the final examination in March next. This young lady, Mrs. Ganguly, married after she made up her mind to become a doctor and has had one, if not two children since. But she was absent only 13 days for her lying in and did not miss, I believe, a single lecture. There's lots of exclamation points in that letter. Like Florence is obviously extremely <laughs> impressed. Really impressed, yeah. That even though she had two children while she was going through med school, she oh, she didn't miss a single lecture. <laughs> For a doctor to get a letter like that from a nurse means she was really hot stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's like, I, I, I tried to accentuate my voice so you could tell. There's like, there's got to be like 12 exclamation points just in that tiny room. <laughs> She also got um, really good press from Anne Besant in her book, How India Wrought for Freedom. And this isn't connected to Florence, but uh, Annie also said she was, quote, a symbol that India's freedom would uplift India's womanhood, which I thought was a neat quote. Yeah, nice. She, uh, upon her return to India, she was promoted to senior doctor, and she also started her own private practice. And okay. she was killing it. Not her patients. She was killing it career-wise. <laughs> I know what you mean. Women would be lined up around the block to have a female doctor see them and their children. Yeah. And she becomes like a little bit of a celebrity of sorts. For, you know, first of all, because she's the first woman to do it all, but then also because she's a good doctor. Yeah. So she, she, at some point, she's hired to treat Nepal's queen mother. And she had a bunch mm -hmm. of other high-profile clients. She was very good at her job. She doesn't limit her work to doctoring, though, at this point. So her unique position as kind of the medical school patriarchy smasher of India, it makes her a powerful voice in all of these other political movements that are part of the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. yeah. And as we've already said, there's a lot going on. And Karambini rolls up her sleeves and she dives into extensive work for the India's women's rights movement. She is one of six representatives in the first female delegation of the 1889 Indian National Congress. She also was instrumental in the movement that sought to improve the conditions of female coal miners in eastern India. Female coal miners. Mm-hmm. All right. I gotta, I've got to adjust my brain a little bit. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, it was the rights that, yeah, I, that all these people are literally slaving away in the mines and often women, and they just had like absolutely no rights. Like they don't have unions. They don't have any of. Yeah. And so she was a part of that fight as well. 
1906, the partition of Bengal divides the country, and Kadambini organizes the Women's Conference in Calcutta for solidarity. And then she goes on to serve as its president in 1908, two years later. And she also is openly supporting a bunch of these like worker labor rights groups at the same time. They all have names, but I'm going to pronounce them all poorly. The, the <laughs> Satyagraha uh, is one of them. Um, and then in 1915, Karambini is invited to speak at the medical conference of 1915. And in her lecture, she rails against the Calcutta Medical College's practice of not admitting female candidates. So even though they had admitted her, they kind of still were not really moving much on that front. Mm -hmm. And so she absolutely tears them apart. And her lecture at this conference leads the university to amend their policies and officially open their doors to all female students. So still almost almost 30 years later, they still had That's hadn't... a third of a century, isn't it? Uh-huh. <laughs> but then her but then she didn't let them get away with it. She she went on and, and helped to open those doors. Do you have any idea how many women doctors there were by this time in India? I don't. I didn't pull that information in my research. When did women get the vote in India? Nineteen twenty seven. Yeah. So, so at this point, you know, the women's rights movement is, is hopping, but it's still not really, it's still not achieved that women's citizenship and right to vote that, you know, yeah. is kind of the marker of the progressive feminist movement, I feel like. She also serves, let's see, there's a few more things she did. She served as president of the Transvaal Indian Association, which was formed after the imprisonment of Mahatma Gandhi in South yeah. Africa. And she goes there for a time and is like, is working tirelessly for that movement as well. Um, and we already mentioned it a little bit, uh, but in the midst of all of these things and all her political work, she birthed and raised five <laughs> children in addition five to the three, <laughs> three stepchildren. Uh, although it is worth mentioning that, and some sources mention this and others omit it, but part of the reason she was able to go to school and become a doctor and get involved in the way she was is is partially due to the fact that she was a member of a higher caste family of origin and married into one as well. So they had some money and they had help raise, you know, I'm sure had some help with the children. And it sounds like she had support from her father and her husband also, who were both involved in women's rights. Exactly. So I think that, you know, women with less financial backing have less options than she did for fighting the system. Um, but I don't want to diminish at all the really epic glass ceiling smashing that she did yeah. uh, for women in India. She served as a doctor for 37 years. A year before her death, she travels to Bihar and Orissa again for the, the women mining laborers movement. She, so she's still even like, even towards the end, she's still doing this political work. And she continues practicing medicine until literally the day of her death, October 7th. 1923 sources said she completes surgery on one of her clients and goes home and almost 15 minutes later she dies wow she in her career did not turn down it said the legends say she never turned down a single medical call her whole career a couple of the sources said she died of tuberculosis others didn't say the cause of death so it's a little hard as a, you know, as a researcher to know. Yeah, tuberculosis probably wouldn't cause death in 15 minutes unless it ruptured a major artery and she bled out that way. Yeah. His, historian David Koff called Kadambini, quote, the most accomplished 
and liberated Brahmo woman of her time. And uh, on her 160th birthday, which was July 18th, 2021, Google had a doodle of her. Uh So we can look it up. I'm going to post it on the website so everybody can see that along with um, the couple pictures they have of her. And that is Karambini Ganguli. Bravo. Bravo. What an incredible woman. What a wonderful story, too. A wonderful yeah. story. And it's what's what's very heartening is she got support from men to do it. Her yeah. husband and her father both. Do you have any idea why they felt it was necessary to bring women equal? You know, I don't know the, the origin of their thought, but I certainly know like when it comes to like the legal actions, you know, she wasn't considered her own citizen. So she couldn't, mm-hmm. I don't think, take someone to court by herself. I think she had to have the men in her life kind of wield some of that power because women just didn't have it. Yeah. So in, in the United States about this time, I would estimate 75% of women were literate. Hmm. Do you know what the numbers might be in India around this time? I don't. You're a better researcher than me. <laughs> These are questions I, just, I, I just didn't come ask up in with my different research. Questions. No, I just come up with... Yeah. No, it's a great question. It's a great question. I mean, I'm just um, trying to figure out how many barriers she had to break through. You know, was there a barrier to actually learning to read and write? Census of India literacy rates. So this table I found only goes back to 1872. Okay. Actually, actually 1881. And it's 0.35% for females. What? But it's also only 8.1% for males. One out of 300 women could read and write. But the men's literacy rate's only eight. But, you know, in general, I think education, vast populations of Indians just weren't being educated at that point. Yeah, that makes her story even more outstanding. Yeah. What a Wikipedia coming through once in a while. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I will never use Wikipedia as a primary source, but I will consult Wikipedia and see where they're using their primary sources. Well, anyway, uh, let me wrap this episode up really quick because I think we're at the end. But uh, it was a good story. It was. Thank a, you. Wasn't she kind of beanie's just incredible women who did so many firsts in a time period where women could do almost nothing. Just always amaze me. So thank you, Joe, for joining me for this episode. You've been your depth of, of wisdom on history in general and then on physicians was, was a great addition. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. To learn more about Karambini Ganguli, visit broadsyoushouldknow.com. We've got pictures of her there and other cool things I found in my research. While you're on the website, click on over to the About page to read more about Joe Lex, our guest today. Also, have you followed us on social yet? If you haven't, get on it. We're on Facebook and Instagram at broadsyoushouldknow and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest abroad, which is how I found Joe, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Are you a fan of this podcast and broads in general? If so, spread the word. Share us with your friends and family. Leave us a review. Those things really help new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really enjoyed hearing about Karambini Ganguli and her story, then you might enjoy some of our other doctor healthcare broads, Mary Edwards Walker, Florence Nightingale, and Mary Seacole. And you might also like our other Indian broads, Shakuntala Devi and Indira Gandhi. All right, see you next week for another Broad You Should Know. <laughs>